How do you scale a business to seven figures? Then how do you scale to eight figures? Then how do you scale to nine figures? If you've ever wanted to know what it takes to grow a business, then you're in the right place. Thanks for tuning in to Scaling with Samir. This show is intended to celebrate and highlight techniques and strategies taught by today's leaders in the business world. Want to know how an e-commerce business started in someone's home to being the world's largest sock store? Want to learn what it takes to become the CEO of one of the largest global online marketplaces? How about actionable steps to building stronger relationships with your customers to produce more revenue? Do you know which numbers you should be paying attention to and which numbers will lead you to success? How will you make your marketing campaigns successful after cookies are gone? Want to learn from the leaders in brand building and attention grabbing marketing? Well, all of those are already in our previous listed episodes, and this episode will be no exception. I interview the top marketers that are influencing the market, making an impact, scaling faster than their competitors, and doing good for the world. We will dissect what they did to get to the multi-million dollar mark. I'm your host, Samir Al-Kamouni, founder and CEO of Fetch and Funnel, which is a performance marketing agency specializing in scaling businesses. Sign up to receive tactics to apply directly to your business to improve results and scale at fetchfunnel.com podcast. At the end of each episode, my goal is to have you feeling inspired and fired up by learning from today's top innovators, marketers, and entrepreneurs. Let's dig into another amazing story about a unique business crushing it and learn from their success and learnings. Hey everybody, welcome back to an exciting episode. I am super pumped today to feature a very interesting brand that is doing very innovative things, but not only that, but they're focusing on the right things. And I'm super excited to talk about that in more detail. Today, I have Sydney Tetro, who is the CEO of Brandless. Sydney, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, I'm super excited to be here. Likewise, I would love for you to just kick off and tell us a little bit about, yeah, Brandless and what you sell and what the brand is all about. Absolutely. You know, so at Brandless, right, we are unapologetically a brand. And what we really think about is this idea of how do you brand less and live more? How do you focus on those things that help you take better care of yourself and your family and the planet? And how do we build this platform and this mission of really helping people accomplish that? And so we think about that from many parts. What are the products people need to be able to do that? How do we bring together other companies and products that help people fulfill that mission? And then how do we fuel them with tools and technology to really help people advocate for the things they love and become a force for good? I think that's awesome because I think that's also something that's super top of mind for a lot of individuals, right? As we're all becoming more conscious consumers, we're thinking about where we put our dollars, what we're purchasing, where we're purchasing it, all of those types of things, right? Uh, I definitely want to dig deeper into that, but would love to just highlight you a little bit and uh, as the CEO and and just kind of tell our audience a little bit about you know what your role entails as CEO of Brandless and maybe even how did you get into that? It's a really great question. When I think about the journey and the path of my career, it has some key intersections. One, focused in customer experience, those immersive experiences, which is really how you bring customers into brands. How you use technology to do that and lead with innovation. And then also how you do things that are good for people on the planet, that mission-driven side of building communities and things that matter. And so those three things have really been woven through everything that I've done. Well, I haven't stayed in the exact same industry the entire time, those key principles have really driven me. So my undergrad's in computer science. 
So I come very strongly out of the technology space and really that innovation side of what that means. And I've had an opportunity to spend time on many sides, B2B and B2C. I, um, in the early days of the Facebook API, we actually built a company that we drove to 100 million users. We had 23 million monthly actives. This was like early days of Facebook. And we really built this amazing experience. And it was the early days of everything being viral and what it meant to do those. We eventually sold that to a company. And when I left that company, I actually joined Disney. And I spent about six years at Disney. And my job there was to think about how we make products out of technology and to lead this effort in how you create these immersive experiences for customers. And it was pretty, to be fair, magical in that ecosystem to do that because it was early stage, brilliant research coming off of from brilliant people. But then you had this playground to be able to play test and develop products. And for me, that what basically canonized what it means to create immersive experiences for customers. Because at the end of the day, everything you build is about the customer. Everything is about the customer and what's possible. And then I love layering in tech, like what's the art of the possible? When I left Disney, I actually did a venture-backed 3D, personalized 3D printing platform. We could literally make you Iron Man. So we built a 3D system that would scan your face. You could buy yourself as a full-color 3D boot collectible. And we partnered with Marvel and Star Wars, all of the sports teams, the gaming people like Assassin's Creed and Halo. You name a brand, we probably... I'm partnered with that. And what it was about is this transformative moment where the things that you love, you became part of their favorite storylines. And we eventually sold that business. And then I spent a couple of years of my career focused on this whole evolution of digital to physical, physical to digital transformation and consumer. And what um, that I almost call it the art of the possible. Like what became possible because of technology and because of innovation? And that really led me into the brandless ecosystem, which is this intersection of innovation, customer experience, and making a difference in the world. And from a personal perspective, I'm always thinking about how are the resources, the talents, the things that I spend time really helping community and people and those pathways. So I also spend time, I, about 14 years ago, I created a nonprofit called the Women Tech Council, all focused on how we increase the number of women in tech. And so I still spend time that, doing that today because I think it's really important that we also do things that build our communities around us and just help other people in the paths that they're faced with, because that's truly, I think, how you build really great entities, organizations, and just, you know, relationships. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and I, I think that's that's awesome. And living and breathing the ethos of the whole brand, I think that's amazing. And then interesting in the Disney uh, side of things, because it sounded like an almost an entrepreneurship type of role yep. where, yeah, that probably gave you a really great opportunity to to do entrepreneurial things, think like an entrepreneur without the risk, right? Disney's going to give you, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's good budgets there, depending, you know, what you're what you're launching and, and things like that, which I think is a really interesting thing. It's something that I recommend to a lot of people who want to essentially get an entrepreneur, get into entrepreneurship, but may not have an idea or something like that. I think entrepreneurship is a great way to do that. And it sounded like you had a really fun one. Uh, yeah, that. It was super cool. It was actually that, you know, so I came out of the entrepreneurial kind of focus and they really wanted that mindset coming in. So it was a role exactly like this, but this totally different playground, but the ability to then see like, okay, yeah, you know, in this playground, how are we going to make businesses out of this innovation that's coming from this really brilliant ecosystem? Yeah, that that's awesome. 
Um, and so now at Brandlist, you're doing a whole bunch of stuff. You're winning awards. You guys are 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 innovating all the time and, and crushing it. I'm I'm curious, what would you consider to be you know one of your biggest successes so far at Brandlist? Uh, it could be more than one. Um, but yeah, if you've had any specific breakthroughs or anything like that, would would love to hear about that. Yeah, you know, I th- that's really I like that question. Super insightful into you know how we think about the business and, and where we're focused. As I think about successes, because building businesses are hard, right? There isn't anyone who builds a company, we were talking about this, where it's not hard to build companies. And you're always trying to think through customers and product and acquisition and relationships, that entire side. And when I think about where our success lies, I actually think it lies in grounding ourselves in the principles that we think make great businesses that are focused on customers and innovation and layering into that a whole data and insights so we know exactly what's happening in the business at any moment in time in order to make these rapid pivots to adjust to market dynamics. The world has faced a really crazy last three years and we really don't show signs of that changing. And so for us to have built a business that has continued to perform so well in these climates that we're in, in uncertain times, for me, is just really a testament to the people that we have working in the company, the processes, the operations, and the culture that we're building that allow us to make really smart real-time decisions, that create a culture of empowerment, and that are allowing us to be successful and really make decisions that make a difference for our growth. Despite all the individual wins or moments in time, fundamentally, we're all trying to build companies that last. And that requires, I think, an entire set of a baseline skill set and a, an organization that is real, gets built in order to do that. And so for me, when I look back and I look at this exact moment, it's one of the things that I'm most proud of that we've built, that we, that we have a company that's operating great, that is growing, um, and that is doing so with a team of amazing people behind it. That's yeah, that's great. And empowering those people to make decisions, like you said, act quickly. I think that's really important, no matter the size, right? That's something that I think gets lost as you grow, right? I think it gets harder and harder to do that, be able to pivot quickly. And it's probably a difficult challenge on your end too, because you're focused, I guess because you have so many products at the end of the day and you have sort of different verticals of that. I understand, you know, you've got, I'm sure there's certain products that are good lean in products or lead in products and things like that. And and the bundles and different things like that. Um, But I guess as you're looking at the data and trying to make those decisions, is that something that you're paying attention to a lot of the time, like, you know, and, and especially in determining like what's next, what your next move is, where you should focus on all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, as you're highlighting, there's so many variables that come into play, right? The synergies in the company, where we should focus, the customer segmentation. And you really are looking for those places where you can bring things together and that collective energy is going to drive growth um, and expansion. And so for sure, it's it, and it's a constant thing. I mean, you, you know, you know this too, as you're growing your business, you're always looking for those inflection points, for those drivers of growth. And for the sophistication and process you can layer into your team that enables consistency and scale. Yeah, which which is which is a hard one, right? Because you want to always make sure, especially as you guys are always launching new products, 
you know, even acquiring other brands. You're trying to keep things consistent. Uh, like you said, you really want to focus on that customer experience. So you don't want to lose that one customer over one product uh, where they could have become a lifetime customer and purchase lots of things from you. And, and I think that's something really important that, you know, and I don't, I don't want to say brands forget or ignore, but I think it's so easy to to forget in a way, I guess, right? Like if there's just a few inferior products, and you're like, well, you know, they're okay, you know, it's fine. They they sell a few here and there, but then if someone receives that product and it reduces their image of you or their experience with your brand or something like that, then then that's where I think you you know could have a much bigger negative effect than just like missing out on that one little sale or something like that. Because of course it seems like you guys are really trying to push, um, you know, for, for creating long-term customers, right. And, and increasing that lifetime value and, and, and all of those types of things. Yeah. I think you're, you know, the, that commentary that you just made on customer experience and their touch points with you, I agree with you. It's super important the the moments that people interact with you and the and because negative interactions are always amplified more than positive it's just the nature of what happens in the human psyche and the ability and the amount of time it takes to recover a negative interaction is far greater than these positive ones um what i one of the things that i loved actually at disney that's kind of stayed with me is that everything was focused on guest satisfaction. And if you were ever in a conversation where someone introduced something that anyone thought created risk for that guest, guest experience, that was never gonna move forward. And so this idea that everything is about guest recovery, everything is about guest satisfaction, I think it changes your mindset and it also changes how you think about empowering people, right? Because sometimes, let's say there is a negative issue in the recovery process, you, you know, you might have all these financial metrics about like, hey, we're only going to do X, Y, Z in order to recover or when. But at the end of the day, if that experience was bad, the lifetime value of that customer, all the effort that you put in to making them a customer and trying to get them to become an advocate really changes. And it's really hard to say that you shouldn't just do what's right for the customer because it's always going to come back. And nothing's ever going to be exactly perfect, but that mindset and then how your teams operate, I do think is fundamental. I always err on the side of like, just do what's right for the customer. What's right for the customer in the moment, that's what you should do. And even if someone might argue the economics are slightly different because the intangible nature of what those lead to in the future is really something that, that is hard to quantify in a moment, but so, so important to building a company and a brand. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, to your point, it's... It almost can make or break you in a way. And then I, I think I, I like that you mentioned the economics because I think it's easy to ignore some things because in the short term, the economics look good. But then in the long term, and unfortunately, some of those things are unmeasurable, right? They're not really, there isn't a way to notice it. It's something maybe you feel along the way, um, right? But it's it's definitely something, you know, we've, we've like we've highlighted jewelry brands on the on the podcast. We, we have a bunch of jewelry clients. And that's something that I think, you know, they've been a lot. The good ones are really good at focusing on like the experience as they receive the product, right? Like what's the unboxing experience yes. look like? And then quickly, you know, make 
adjustments according to people's feedback and things like that, right? And and I think that's a, another thing that happens a lot in like the beauty industry and the makeup industry, probably something you guys deal with a lot where, you know, if the delivery of the, right, like the, the way that the product's uh, delivered, I don't mean like physically delivered to their house. I mean, like, how do you, right, right. you know, how, you know get, get the exfoliator out of the, out of the bottle and things like that, right? To then, uh, you know, I, I think that those things end up, you know, and when you pay attention to your customer, right, the feedback that they're giving you and things like that, then it, then that's really where you can separate yourself from the competition because those is the, that is where you start getting the raving reviews. And, you know, to your point, it's kind of like a five-star or one-star world. <laughs> it, it totally is, totally. I'm curious, what, what are maybe some of like the two or three of the biggest growth levers that you've pulled for the business? Yeah, that, you know, that's a great question. So one of the things that we think a lot about is how do you make sure that your, our products are accessible in the places that customers want to reach them? And this has been a transformation that's happening in consumer. If you think about five or six years ago, everyone was talking about products by channel. This is an Amazon-only brand. This is a direct-to-consumer brand. This is a retail brand. And then we went through the pandemic where everything was online. But then what's really happened is Customers are really thinking about and consumers think about where are the products that I want and I love and I need them in the places that I am. And so I think there's this shift happening where it's no longer even as much driven by companies as it is by what's the right thing for the consumer experience. And so when we think about levers for growth, we think a lot about how are you showing up in the places that consumers need to find those products at that moment when they're making decisions. Because one of the other things we saw over the last couple of years is customer loyalty changing. It used to be I was completely loyal to a brand, but then we had so many supply chain issues and all sorts of other things that consumers decided maybe they're willing to make trade-offs. And so in that land of trade-offs, it now forces you to think about how you show up in places where it's important to customers and the consumer and what's that experience they want. And I actually think it's a really great mindset. So when we think about levers, we think about growth drivers, a lot of that is meeting customers in the places that they want to follow you. And that exists in many places. It exists in marketing channels and then it exists in purchase channels because both of those are different. We, you know, we know our marketing mix and we've got all these paid or known media, but that's also intersect with different places. And then you have these distinct channels. So as we've looked at levers for growth, we have put very concentrated and specific effort into where should these products show up? Where do customers expect them to show up? And what's the experience that they need? And then we put them in that. And that strategy alone, I think, has very, very, very has had a very strong impact in the products because it also starts to diversify the concentration risk that might exist in one isolated channel. Now, I would argue that it takes a different level of sophistication because you have to understand what products work in what channels, how to market them in those individual channels. And the inventory that you need in order to fulfill any of those channels, and they're different. And so it does level up businesses. What I think is great for the market in that context is that it also creates, I think, stronger differentiation and better opportunity for companies to become good at that in order for them to really have performance. It will be harder for companies to be uh, sustainable if you're only in one isolated channel. Um, and that's really just speaking to what customers expect. And that's really why we build companies is to meet them build relationships with customers who love our products. But the focus on those, it has proven to be very, very good for our business. We made those decisions to have that strong focus almost a year ago, even preconditions that the market's facing now. And that effort collectively from the team has then paid off, I think, with the growth that we've seen in this last year. 
And I appreciate that you're saying that as well, because I think a lot of brands tend to potentially shy away from some of those channels and opportunities, right? Like Amazon is one we hear time and time again, clients just like, you know, oh, well, Amazon's going to take this big cut. And then, you know, I've got to send inventory to that, da, 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 right? And it sounds like the way that you're doing it is the right way of thinking about it, right? And that, and I know we were talking about omni-channel sort of versus multi-channel before we hit record. And I think that is really important, right? The omni-channel approach, because it not only gives you know, your team, that cohesive, you know, the ability to have a more cohesive strategy and really deliver to your point, the right thing at the right time, the right place. Um, but I think customers, right. Consumers appreciate that as well, right. Just being able to, to do that. I think there is, unfortunately, you know, that there is this nuanced, I guess, emotion behind, you know, Amazon and, and all of these things, right? And so if you're there or not, you know, and I see you're not there, and then I was, I was going to make that purchase immediately if it was, and now I just hesitate not to. And I think that the missed opportunity time and time again is greater than Amazon fees or whatever <laughs> kind of a thing, right? Like the downsides that a lot of people think about hesitating to, to move into there. Um, but I, I'm curious, at, at, oh yeah, go for it. Now, you were just making me think the reality is no matter what channel you go into, there are fees. We used to say that direct to, everyone went direct to consumer because it was so cost effective. But we should all be really clear that there are expenses on top of that. There's expenses in creating content if you were going influencer or building those relationships or whatever it is. It's just that they end up in different buckets than an amount that you know a company just takes off the top line. Like You have the ability to control those. But when you really step back, the economics aren't vastly different between the channels. You go into retail, people are going to say the same thing, right? Oh, like, you know, my A cost has got to be this, and then there's going to be so much of this, and then I've got, you know, the, the returns and all of those. But these dynamics exist if you sell a physical product. And the mix of them, and I think the diversity that it gives you and the ability for customers to find you, I think far outweighs any of those dynamics. But it does add a different layer of your operational expertise. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I'm and I'm curious as you are taking you know the omni-channel approach and you're thinking about your you know your marketing and your advertising efforts and your you know what channels you're on. Are you just you know are you going just holistic? Hey, here's here's the brand and and here's just the product mix and everything that we stand behind. Or do you get very specific about you know what you're pushing where? Uh, especially, I guess, in that top of funnel approach where you're trying, you know, for new customer acquisition uh, versus like a retargeting or remarketing approach. Yeah, so a couple of things are really core to us. One is building relationship with customers. So that's what leans us into being digitally native first, even though we have multiple channels. So we think about that digitally native direct-to-consumer channels very, very strongly. I also believe that you have to have a strategy for what products work in what channels, because not all products work universally the same in the channels because of the economics underneath them. Or, you know, just take volumetric issues, right? Like shipping around really large boxes of things for maybe the price of the inventory, because even though it doesn't weigh much, might cost you way more. So it might not be great um, in that ecosystem. And that's why I think you see the this really smart application getting applied to Oh, I'm going to sell on Amazon. What does the competitive landscape look like? What does the customer expect from the product here? What are those economics? And that actually differs from what you do in retail, and it differs what you do in direct-to-consumer because the stack is so different. How you talk to customers, 
what you I mean in Amazon, my ability to add and increase the basket size is pretty limited because the basket influence is actually coming from something a brand doesn't own. And so then it becomes a very individual product experience versus a big basket. In the Shopify world or my direct-to-consumer, I definitely influence basket size of my own brand or of collabs that I'm doing as they come in. But in retail, I also don't either because they have an entire other storefront with other products that distract the consumer um, or make them think about other things. And so that's where this intelligence of what is your customer, what it makes sense in this, what product makes sense, what size, what are all the things that you need to do. And it also allows you to create differentiation in the channels and make sure you don't cannibalize products across channels. Um, but it but it adds complexity. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And And I'm sure as you're looking at that data, you find like, what are those core products to focus on in the early days? And, and what are those those products? Like this is something we try to push a lot where, you know, brands will just say, hey, send them to our homepage or they don't. And they do offer a lot of products and they don't know what that first product really should be, because I think larger brands like yours, when they figured that out and they know like, hey, if this customer buys one of these three products of ours, their product, you know, they're a customer for life. They're going to buy more from us. They're going to enjoy the experience with us. They're going to love the product and, you know, and, and they're going to come back and, and, and turn into a, a, you know, a much larger lifetime value versus just, you know, Hey, we have all these things, come check it out and see what works for you. <laughs> and you think about funnels all the time, right? Like who's the customer, what's the experience they should have and how do we navigate them through that? I mean, I don't think anything changes that fundamental, no matter what channel you're in, you're always thinking about what are those steps that you control and how do you lead customers to awareness all the way to purchase and then advocacy. Yep, you got it. And so I'm curious, talked about a couple successes there and I, and I love all those points. I'm curious, maybe what are some hard lessons learned or maybe some landmines that you've stepped on uh, that others you know, following in your footsteps might benefit from hearing about? Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a great question. I think, you know, one of the things that everyone right now um, is in the midst of that is, you know, content is king because it's all your messaging. And I think when you, if you ever take your eye off of the ball about what the reasons customers buy and you try to create something that's super creative, but doesn't match message, it tends to impact your conversion. And so I think in building companies and content, there's this constant, these constant guide rails that you need that say, this is what people love about this product. This is why they buy. And you have to really anchor yourself in the reasons that customers come back to you. I think that's a really, I think it's a really important one. And I think in a world where so content's so much content, so easy to create, right? And even as I think about AI that can now write marketing copy for us. <laughs> the thing that I keep coming back to is people have creative genius, but it's also because they understand so deeply, um, especially when you build products, you tend to build products because you appreciate and understand deeply the needs someone has and how you're creating differentiation for them and how you speak to that. And I think grounding in that and every time decisions are made that deviate from that, it always directly impacts conversion. And then the other lesson that I would say is I am a huge believer in right people, right seeds, and taking care of your people. Because at the end of the day, you build companies with people and you need those everyone rowing in the same direction. 
And whenever someone's not rowing in the same direction, it immediately impacts what you're doing as a company. And that's the thing we're all trying to avoid is how do we row in the same direction? How do we still pivot, right? We all want to know those things, but what is the North Star that we're going after? What's the thing that we're trying to accomplish together? And then how do we do that? And I think oftentimes when you build companies, sometimes you leave wrong people in the seat too long and it ends up impacting yourselves. And sometimes we do that just because we want to be nice, right? Like it's really hard to make changes. It's really hard to optimize that. But part of our responsibility in building companies and providing jobs is also protecting those jobs by protecting the companies we're building. And so putting people in those right seats and and being not afraid to make the changes that you think are right in those moments to try to get the outcomes that you need, I think you have to do that. And I, I think oftentimes we don't make those decisions fast enough. And then the trailing effect is months later, there's impact to revenue or profitability, and it takes you months to recover. And so I think you can never you can never talk enough about how critical it is to have organizations organized well with people who can execute and work together. Yeah, that's a really really good point, Nate. And I think it's it's easy to forget when you are an e-com brand, right? I think it's 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 easier when you're SaaS, or it's you know it's even easier when you're service based because you know so maybe you've done a great job of creating the vision and the mission and the core values, and it's what everybody's rallied behind, and everybody has their roles and responsibilities and their goals and their metrics, you know. And then I think in the e-com space, it, there's there still is that right, and and so clearly Brandless has that message, right? That core mission that, you know, what you're trying to do in the wellness space and for family and and, and all of those things that uh, I think is really easy to get the team rallied behind and, and is incredible. And I think it's why we push on the podcast and I do, you know, individually to push brands to get to try to be more mission and purpose driven, no matter what they sell or what they do, right? Even us, just as an advertising agency, we're still very purpose uh, and mission driven and only try to work with mission and purpose driven brands, right? But I think that that it's, I think it's easy to miss that along the way. And I'm, and I'm also curious on ways that you've enabled the team maybe to like voice those types of things, right? Because I think like, there, it's easy to ignore it, right? You've got your people in the warehouse, you've got your marketing team, you've got your, you know, your customer service team, what have you. And maybe you're listening to your marketing team all the time because they're the ones, you know, they're the ones looking at the reviews and they're the ones getting the feedback and the NPS scores and whatever it is, right? But then maybe there's someone in the warehouse that like has this brilliant idea that would pivot slightly, but would really help boost productivity, whatever it is. Right. Um, and I'm curious how, you know, any ways that you feel like you've maybe enabled people to, to jump in on that or, or, or give their thoughts and ideas. Cause it sounds like you're doing a really great job of that. And I think a lot of businesses struggle with that. I think there's two key things that you have to weave into a culture. One is an openness and a willingness to ask questions. There's so many things you don't know. You don't know. So I think you have to weave in this ability for everyone just to ask questions like, hey, what what happened there? What was going on? And enable that pervasively. And then also the ability for everyone to take feedback at every level of the company. And it was interesting. I walked out of an investor pitch last week. And I was on the phone and like my chief legal officer and my pre- the president, we were all on this call and, you know, I pitched and I walked out of the room and I'm always the first one to say like, hey, could I have done anything better? 
Like, was there something like, did I read that right? Or I didn't really feel great about this. What did you guys think? Would you have changed anything? Like, how do you think that went? I actually think that starts from the top down. This ability for you to say, like, I don't think I know how to do everything 100% right. And I'm also willing for people to say, I don't know, Sid, maybe you shouldn't have said it that way. Or maybe we should answer it this way better next time. Or yeah, I did feel a little off. You should have done this. That's actually a really hard thing for most people. But I think that woven with questions. Now, for me, questions is also based on data. I'm a big believer in I don't need everything to be 100% right, but I need the leading and lagging indicators that help me understand what's happening in the performance of a business. What are those things that, hey, they're telling us that something might question. I'm always the first person to question, like to walk in and be like, hey, you know what? We're faced with headwinds in markets. What does that mean? What should we be thinking about? Where, like, do you think this one data signal is starting to lead us into thinking about that? I think we should pivot on that. Well, what do you think that means? Oh, th- why is our this inventory line? Oh, it spiked. Well, why did it do that? Could we have predicted that? How does that go to demand planning? So it's just these. Instead of, I think oftentimes we take a little bit more of like a direct approach of like, I see this in this data. This must be wrong. Go fix it. Versus. The openness to, well, why did that happen? What does that tell us? What steps should we take? Mm, I don't know. This thing might happen in the future. How should we model for that? Because that actually elevates a whole other set of conversations. And it does so even when you have data on customer service. You look at this trailing info. So we tend to look at lots of data, not just week over week and month over month, but year over year, like a revenue, profitability, with like a ratios, our ratios holding, what's happening in that. And then across almost every element of the business where we can find data. And we've built this in a way that's also agile. So we think about it not as, is this one point exactly perfect? I'm like, oh, it could be three to 5% off because the data is kind of relative. Okay, that's not going to be that big of an issue, right? Like the standard deviation is okay, but is it directionally telling me something that we should be talking about? Is it introducing some risk for us? How do we discuss that? And so we, as even a culture, we have, even the moment we acquire a company, week one, it's putting a metrics dashboard in place. So the language of the business is consistent so that we can figure out what is happening in order to make smarter, better decisions as we go forward. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, you as you grow, the more data you have. And I, it's super important to pay attention to the data. But I, I think it is, you know, and, and I and I love sharing that stuff. I think that that's really important, too. Right? I've been in s- startups and, and I think the more transparent usually businesses are, with that, I think it enables team members to say more, you know, more actively yeah. ideas and, and be more active in that, you know, in that role uh, or, you know, as far as giving ideas or recommendations or anything like that, because if they don't know, they don't know, right? If they don't, you know, and I, and I positive or negative, right? I think it's it's easy for us to focus on the positive and say, hey, everything's great. Hockey stick growth, da, 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 uh, right? But then, yeah, when but when there are the issues happening, like those are the most important times to be talking to the team about it, I feel like, and to be focusing on that and really, you know, relating to them about, you know, what's happening and what could we improve? And like you're saying, look at the data appropriately and make sure that we're looking at the right data and, and tracking the right things, you know, and if you're not not figure out a way to track that data right and if you're not a a data person you can usually find one pretty pretty easily to help you with that Uh, you know and there's infinite amounts of dashboards and all of those things out there as well to help you navigate that so yeah i mean i i love that you pointed that out and i'm curious too because we talked about content and i definitely don't want to brush over that so i am curious as far as you know maybe 
what is some of the you know what what is some of the role that creative and content production is going to play for you in this year and then maybe also as we've been talking about data how do you determine what to focus on and and where to focus those efforts on to make sure that you know you're getting your your biggest bang for your buck right because i think that's a lot of things e-commerce businesses are always thinking about right we can get yeah. some things done scrappy we can also really you know, budget for this really high production piece of content, right? And so how are you looking at that as you're growing the brand, you know, year over year? And, and what role is that going to play this year? Yeah, so both, answers to both questions. So thinking about, I mean, co- content super important. I think sometimes everyone thinks about the visual impact of content versus the messaging and strategy underneath it, which is really the key to success of great content is how is it communicating? What's the tone of that? What's the message that really has to get shown? And then how does it obviously, you know, there's very formulaic ways that lots of people think about content, right? And uh, what does this frame have to be in these first three seconds? And all of those things are also critically important, but they really rely heavily on the fundamentals of what message needs to be spoken to a customer about a product. So as we think about content, we very much think about, are we doing a good enough job of remembering the reasons people buy, what customers need to know, the emotional connection that they make, and how you build those relationships with them? I think that's just a great reminder for everyone on content because there's content's a big job. There's so much to be captured. There's so much to be, and you're optimizing all the time, and you're taking components and weaving together, but it all really starts with that message. And I think sometimes we put that in buckets of copywriters, and I actually don't think that's what it is. I mean, people write brilliant copy, but before that is the strategy of what you're really trying to communicate and execute on. So we think about how we build content from that perspective. You know, from the, um, you know, this question that I think you asked around, how do you think about data and how does that lead you to make decisions? I think what you said is true. You can, there's so much data. You can look at data all day and then you can be paralyzed by the data. So I think there's this balance of what is the information and what's the minimum set of information that helps you make decisions. And then I think you must weigh that against, you know, in every project in, in software development, we teach that you've got, you know, scope time resources. Those are the, the boundaries. But then when you think about opportunities, you also have this element that one of those morphs into that is size of the price. So you have to decide where do you spend time to get the best return? Because sometimes you can spend a huge amount of time and it's going to move nothing. Like I used to talk about this. I used to have people come to me all the time. They're like, Sid, my website's totally broken. I got to fix my website because that's the way I'm going to increase conversion. And then you step back and you're like, well, do you know what? There's actually no consumers coming to the website. So I'm pretty sure fixing conversion is actually not fixing the problem. And so you really have to step back and you have to think in this root cause analysis of, What are the things that have the best levers? What are the things where if we spent time, make the biggest impact? Oh, if our problem is way ahead of, we don't actually know our segment or what to talk to about our segment for the product, we should probably start there. Because if we start there, then we're going to get to the next problem of, oh, okay, the message worked, but then they hit a page that didn't work. Oh, okay. Well, then now we have a different conversion problem. And so I think when you evaluate it, you're really just looking for data that helps provide you a guide to the things that are most important. And then you're also solving problems in that same way. If I'm going to go spend this resource, is it going to give a return? And if it's going to be a very minor focus, even if it's a passion project for someone, it doesn't make any sense. You have limited resources and every project that you do takes time from the team. And so if you ask them to do 50 things, they'll never do 50 things. 
So you should focus on the things that are really going to give you the outcomes that you need because you cannot do everything well. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And I, I think you touched on a lot of really good nuggets there. And I feel like we can go very deep into all, pretty much all of those. Uh, but I like that you're you're thinking about it from you know a CRO perspective, right? From a conversion rate optimization perspective. You're thinking about it from a you know, from a, a first touch point perspective, just all of the things, right, that are really important um, to identify, yeah, those bottlenecks, right, and, and alleviate those. And then at the end of the day, what we've been talking about is you're just increasing the the, the value and the and the customer experience, right, which is, which is so important. So, yeah, I mean, I, I love that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, last question, I'm curious, what advice would you give to other founders that are maybe trying to break through some ceilings, some revenue marks, right? Maybe it's 5 million or 10 million or 20 million. What advice would you give them? I mean, I'm a big believer that building great companies, you need teams of people around you to help you point, to help point out the places Sometimes actually we were just talking about where you get the next stage stage of growth. When you've been running a company, let's say you've broken the million dollar mark and you're trying to get to the $5 million, the levels of problems you have to solve change because now you, you might be able to do them one way, but you can't break to five or 10 or to 50 or to a hundred without a whole, a whole slew of other challenges that come up and you can't run the company the same way. Like you can probably bootstrap with individual people. We were talking about this, right? It's a different way when you launch the company where then you have to add resources and scale that. And it also takes the mindset as you move from maybe being an individual contributor to a manager to running teams. That's really hard transitions for a lot of people. And so my advice to people as they think about growing are surround yourself with people who can help you see those next levers that if you pull them, take you to the next level. Sometimes when you're in the seat, it's hard to see. Sometimes it's hard to see what will unlock that growth. And I really think you have to play the game with an abundance mindset. You lean into the things that create abundance versus just um, an isolation and a protecting just what's here today. Because really great companies are built by understanding all the things that come together um, and then leaning into how you build with people around you in order to create more opportunity. I think that's just really true in how you build businesses. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Amazing advice. And it is very true. And I, I think that those team members change, like you said, right? I, there was someone, I can't remember uh, who it was. It was another podcast I was listening to, but there was a super successful founder and he said it was like, he he, he had rules of ones and threes. So like 1 million to 3 million, 3 million to 10 million, 10 million to 30 million, et cetera, where he was like, it, it that is where like the the team changes, right? Who's who got you to three million is not who's going to get you to ten million. Who got you to ten million is not who's going to get you to thirty million. Doesn't mean you replace those people or you get rid of them, but they are not. To your point, they are not going to be the ones to help help you navigate to what problems need to be solved and what you need to do. Uh, and I also love that you're talking about the abundance mindset too, because I think that that's that's really important and that will guide your path, right? That'll guide where you're going and, and allow you to focus on the right things. So I love that you mentioned that. Um, any last, you know, last thing here, anything you've been reading lately that you'd recommend? Oh, you know, that's a, that's a great question. I think I have like six books up on my, um, up on my nightstand right now. Um, I think a couple of things that have come out recently that I will just say, and it's been on my mind, top of my mind, it comes out of um, Scott O'Neill's book, but this idea that 
culture of companies, they're really grounded in what you celebrate and what you tolerate. And for me, that's become the definition of how I drive building teams. What are we going to celebrate? What are we going to tolerate? And it's no more and no less. And I think it shows up in every aspect of the business when you're trying to grow. Just the answer to those two questions. That's awesome. So you're building this amazing team, building everybody up, building an amazing brand, even though it's brandless. <laughs> and yeah, and and focusing on the right things and making sure that, yeah, I think everybody knows that, right? And, and your customer, your team, and then that's what sounds like has really enabled you to, to elevate and just continue to grow, focusing on the right things, um, which, which I applaud. And so... Yeah, Sydney, it's been awesome having you on the podcast. Really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, any anywhere if people want to get in touch with you to to reach out or and of course I'd recommend everybody check out brandless.com. Exactly. Obviously, there's brandless.com, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. So or any of the social platforms, Twitter or Instagram, which is Sid Tetro. I'm sure you'll sp- my name, and no one ever gets the spelling, but there's no one else, so you can find me if you search for my name. <laughs> I'll definitely put it in there. And uh, yeah, again, really appreciate it. Awesome conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much for listening to Scaling with Samir. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your thumbs up ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. We also have snippets of these episodes on YouTube. Scaling with Samir is sponsored by Fetch and Funnel. We've partnered with hundreds of businesses and generated over 500 million for clients using our trademarked Fetch and Funnel method. If you're trying to scale your business, get in touch with us today at fetchfunnel.com. You can also get content that you can learn and apply directly into your business to improve results and scale on our email newsletter. If you are a successful business that is crushing it and would like to be on this program, please visit fetchfunnel.com slash podcast guest. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.